And as we kind of enter into this, um, you know, we, we just finished uh, kind of celebrating um, New Year's, right? And so hopefully everybody had a, had a good New Year's. Um, I, I was talking with several people. I don't know that I've talked to anybody yet who actually stayed up to midnight. Uh, did anybody in here stay up till midnight? Any, wow, okay. Maria, all right. Three in the morning? Wow. Uno with the children. You had dinner at midnight. Okay. Okay. Well, I was in bed by at least by ten that night. Um, so, um, however, New Year's is uh, you know as kind of thinking about New Year's and, and what all that what all that means. Um, you know, New Year's is is um, there's there's several things I think that uh, that New Year's brings with it. One of the one of the best I think is uh, an opportunity for uh, things that we want to change from. Uh, maybe the years past, or things that we just want to have, uh, we want to do differently this year. And um, I, I heard a, uh, I read a, a poem by a guy who uh, described New Year's this way, and I thought it was really good. He says, uh, it's called I Am New Year. He said, uh, I am an unspoiled page in your book of time. I am your next chance at the art of living. I am your opportunity to practice what you have learned about life during the last 12 months. All that you sought and didn't find is hidden in me, waiting for you to search it, but with more determination. All the good that you tried for and didn't achieve is mine to grant when you have fewer conflicting desires. goes on to say, all that you dreamed but didn't, but didn't dare to do, all that you hoped but did not will, all the faith that you claimed but did not have, these slumber lightly, waiting to be awakened by the touch of a strong purpose. I am your opportunity to renew your allegiance to him who behold I am making who says, Behold, I am making all things new. And just that idea of with a new year there comes new opportunities, new things that we um, desire to uh, change from the years past, things that we want to uh, work on and improve. And, and uh, so we all, we all have those things, right? And we call them, most of us will call them resolutions, right? We, we say we we're going to make some New Year's resolutions. And uh, they're kind of funny things. You know, I've, there's a few things that I want to work on this year that I've kind of put in my mind. Okay, January is a great time to start working on those things, on those re- re- resolutions. However, I love, I love uh, one guy, one poor guy, he said, uh, you know, I'm tired of making resolutions that don't work. Um, I'm tired of, of, of just coming up with these things in January and then uh, I don't even get halfway through the year and then I can't even keep them. And so he said, I'm going to make some resolutions that, that I think I can keep. He said, so I'm going to resolve to gain weight. I'm going to stop exercising. Uh, I'm going to read less and watch more TV to procrastinate more, uh, to quit giving money uh, and time to charity. Uh, to not date uh, to not date any member of the Baywatch crew, um, and to never make New Year's resolutions again. And uh, even though I, I think that he may be a little bit off, I think there is sometimes uh, uh, when we think about resolutions and the things that we try to make. Sometimes there's there's an issue in which we try to make them. Um, we we think that you know, man, there's this thing that we need to change. Uh, within a certain amount of time or a certain uh, season that we need to happen. And what we need to realize is that we actually need a revolution in our lives. And that's, that's kind of where we're heading is that we need more than just to say, I'm going to make a promise, but we need something that's going to come in and completely change us at the core of who we are. And, and so as we have, uh, as a team, been thinking about uh, 
the new year and what we wanted to um, teach through together as a team, um, we just felt like this was a great time of year to talk about what is that vision that God has given us as a church um, to be about, and really individually, um, what is that vision in each one of our lives that we should be about? Um, and so our, our church vision statement, just, just so you guys know, because it's going to kind of lead into where we're going in Ezra, but our church vision statement is to be a community that is rebuilding our lives on the bedrock foundation of Jesus. Now, I didn't come up with this. Uh, actually, our, our church in Bedford uh, came up with this, this phrasing. And, uh, but but I, I love the idea that, you know, in our lives, there are foundations that we put up. There are things that we put in our lives, uh, in the place of God many times in our lives. And um, at times we need a season that we can come back and to tear down those uh, foundations, those poor foundations, and we need to rebuild um, on a better foundation. And so that foundation for us as a church is on Jesus, and that's what we want to be about. Um, and so we are going to use the book of Ezra as a guide uh, to kind of help us learn to rebuild, uh, to give us a picture of, of some of the ways, some of the areas that we can rebuild in our lives. Um, and so the, the storyline essentially of Ezra, if you haven't read through it, and, and um, Ross is going to come in a minute and give us a lot more detail on this, but essentially um, Ezra was called to uh, be, be in the process of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the spiritual lives um, of the people of God, of the Israelites. Um, they had been um, exiled for a long time out of, out of uh, their homeland, and so they'd kind of forgotten what it was like to be a people of God. And so now as they come back in, Ezra is, is trying to rebuild the place that they would worship God, but also the people that would worship God. And, um, and, and so when they, when they get back, to Israel, uh, back to Jerusalem, um, they start this rebuilding process. And so we're going to use that kind of as the framework uh, in our time. And we're going to look at what Ezra did, and then we're going to see, does that apply over to my life? What are some of those, those things that we saw that they were struggling with or dealing with uh, that may apply to, to my life and to my situation? Now, I want to give one warning quickly before we get into that. Um, and that warning is this, is that we are not going to... Um, I don't know if there's a word, but I said uh, superheroize. I don't think that's actually a word. But um, what I mean by that is we're not going to make Ezra and the people in, in the book of Ezra out to be something that the Bible didn't say that they are. Um, I've, I've, I've been looking around, and there are several books even out there that says, you know, 10 ways to be the best leader like Ezra or to, to change your life just like Ezra. And what we have to realize is when we come to the Bible, when we come to the Word, especially in Ezra, it gives us a very real picture of these people and what they struggled with and what they dealt with. Um, and it doesn't always paint a beautiful picture. Um, however, I think that is so important for us because what we're going to uh, do is to be able to identify with them. Because one thing I know about myself and I know about all people is that we have mess in our life. Um, there are things in our life that we put in there that, that distract us from God, distract us from uh, who He's called us to be and how He's called us to live. Um, and so what we're not going to do is we're not going to go into it and say, you know, this is the perfect example. Um, I think a lot of times seeing that the places that they fail um, really relate uh, over with us very well. And so um, we're going to try to go through this and, and just make it what it says it is um, and just be as completely transparent with that as we can. Um, and so our, our theme for, for this series of foundation um, is is 
rebuilding on the bedrock foundation of Jesus. Um, and so we're gonna we're just gonna be talking about what does it look like in our lives um, to tear down some of those foundations that we've built and then to rebuild those back on Jesus, um, the core, the foundation of of what it should be about. And so today, um, what I want us to do is I want us to look in a passage actually outside of Ezra um, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want us to take a minute and just look at a story that Jesus shared with, uh, with some people about what it looks like to have foundations in our life and what those foundations um, ultimately uh, should be built upon. And uh, I always appreciate how Jesus can take something that um, is so deep and profound and then to put it in a very simple way uh, by giving us a story or a picture for us to be able to identify with. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 7. Uh, and we're going to be looking just at verses 24 through 27 <clears throat> as he tells this story. And this is probably a story that you've heard before, a familiar story. Um, but I think it's one that drives home this theme of what our foundation should be built upon. So starting in verse 24... It says, everyone then who hears these words of mine uh, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the flood came and the wind blew and beat down on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the flood came. And the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the loss of it. See, Jesus kind of sets up two, uh, two different um, foundations that I think we all have seen in our lives and the lives of people around us, right? He said that there's a solid foundation. Um, there's a rock that we can build our lives on, which is the things that he has said and the things that he's called us to do. And then there's a shaky foundation, uh, which is the foundation that we hear what he says, but yet we kind of go our own way. We do our own thing. And, and he, he lays out in the story uh, both of those foundations. Um, and so first I want to talk about the shaky foundation. He says that um, the, the man who built on the, the shaky foundation, right, um, that foundation was really built on, his, on himself on the things that uh, he was relying on. It wasn't on, on the truth of God and his word, but yet it was on himself and those things that he knew. And so um, it was not a good foundation. Um, you see, for a lot, of, a lot of times we think in our lives that um, things seem good to us in the moment, right? I mean, we've all done that. We've all been there, right? We've all made that decision or had that moment where we were like, hey, this seems really good in the moment. Right? Y'all been there? Y'all remember those those moments? I'm not going to ask anybody to share this morning. Um, any of those, right? But we, we've all had those moments, right? Where we're like, man, in the moment, that seemed like a good idea. It, was, it just came to mind. When I was in uh, high school, I thought for a minute it was a good idea to highlight my hair one time. Um, however, you know, being a high school student, you don't have a lot of money. Um, and so uh, some buddies of mine, we went to Walmart and bought one of these like self-highlighting kits or whatever. And so I, I did it. I highlighted my hair or whatever. Um, I, I kind of got lost in the moment of um, just kind of hanging out with friends and, and didn't really look at the time that it was sitting in there. And so, like, I don't know, it was an hour or so that it was kind of hanging out on my hair or whatever. So then I washed it out, and it looked fine that night. I thought it looked pretty cool. So I wake up the next morning, though, and my hair is, like, bright orange, like, like, like highlighter orange. Um, and so that was really cool coming home and explaining that to my mom uh, about why my hair was that color. Right? But in the moment, it was like... <laughs> 
I'm going to look awesome. I'm going to have highlights, um, and it's going to be awesome and, and all that sort of stuff, right? So we, we all have those moments that uh, we feel like, man, when it, when, it, when it seems like things are the right thing or the easy thing or the best thing, right? But what does he say? He says, but when the rain comes, right, when testing comes in those moments, those foundations, they don't hold, Right, and so while things may be going good, um, and things may be seeming like they're you're doing what you need to do, yet seasons of testing come in our life, right? And, and when those testings come, when those opportunities come to beat against those foundations, um, when they're not things that are going to last, uh, they tend to wash away and to wipe away. Um, and so as we as we look at building our lives, uh, we need to, to really ask the question, what, what are we building our lives on? Is it that shaky foundation? Is it that uh, foundation where, man, what I want and what I need and what I desire and all those things, is that the core of what we're building our lives on? Um, or are we putting our hope in something that's going to last? Um, you know, we'll be, we'll be talking about at the end of the message, like, what does this look like for each one of us in, in, in very practical, specific ways. But right now, I want you to just start thinking in your mind, like, what are some of those foundations that I put my stock in, my hope in, right? What are some of those things in my life? Um, and I want you to start thinking about it because um, sometimes we, we need a little bit of time to think about um, things. And then we're like, oh, yeah. Maybe this and this and this. So start thinking about what are some of those things in your life that, that you've put up and you've started to put your trust and your hope and your foundation in. But Jesus also talks about a wise man, right? And he says that he built on a solid foundation, uh, which, which he's going to say is his words, his truth that Jesus gave. That's the solid foundation. And so he's, he's going to compare the wise man. Um, and, and so the wise man then is, uh, is the one who uh, doesn't look at self first, but looks and says, you know what, from, from my perspective right now, this may not look like it's the easy thing or the thing that I want to do, but yet I'm going to trust and believe that what God has said is better for me than what I'm thinking in that moment, right? And that's what, that is what uh, Jesus is telling him. In fact, um, in John chapter 15, uh, verses 7 and 8, this is a passage you're probably familiar with. This is a, the passage where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and how we are, as his followers, to be rooted or to abide in him. But look at what it says in verse 7. It says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, right? If, 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 if I take stock in your life and you root me into your life, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Um, but notice in verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. See, this is the picture of what it looks like to have Jesus as the foundation. Um, that our lives then are producing fruit, are producing these things, these good works and things that Jesus has called us to be. Um, it's, a, it's a life transformation that's happening. And so this abiding, being rooted in Jesus and, and just being completely devoted to him as our foundation, um, that is what it looks like to, to be on this solid foundation. Um, and so, so he says, um, again, to abide, to abide in him, right? Um, and that word abide literally means to stay or to be settled in someone. And so are we settling in the truth that, that we find from the word of God and that relationship with Jesus? Or do we find ourselves more settled in uh, things that, that maybe bring us momentary uh, satisfaction and pleasure? Um, and so if we're truly followers, right, he says the true mark of being a follower of Jesus is that you're going to be rooted and fixed to him who is the solid foundation. Um, 
And so what I think this looks like practically in our lives is we, as we kind of look over the course of, of Ezra and as we look at what it looks like to have a solid foundation, um, I want us to, to look at this uh, theological word. It's called uh, Christocentric or Christocentric. Um, but Christocentric literally means having Christ as the center. And so I want you, I want you to write that word down maybe or just kind of file it away in your mind because we're going to keep going back to this as what it looks like to be on that solid foundation. What does it look like to build on that foundation? Um, and this, this word comes out from uh, the theological understanding of what it means to see Jesus at the center of everything. And, and most often it's applied to the word of God. Right, and so, so as you're reading through God's Word, it's the mentality that you're looking and that you can see Christ at the center of it. So whether you're reading back here in the in the very beginning pages, or whether you're at the end, uh, where it's talking about how things are going to wrap up at the end of this time, right? No matter where you're at in this, Jesus is the center. You can find Jesus. It's either pointing to Jesus who's coming, or it's looking back at what He did as the fulfillment of those things, uh, Christocentric. And I think that needs to be what our lives look like. I think they need to be centered on Christ and who he is um, as our foundation. And so I want to I leave, uh, I want to kind of wrap the, this, this little section up of the theme uh, with a quote um, from St. Um, Augustine. And I love this. It's one that has been rattling around kind of in my heart and my mind over, over the last couple of weeks. But it's this. He says, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And I think that is something we're going to see true in our lives is that, you know, we can try a lot of things in our lives. And, and a lot of times we do. Um, try different things to fill that need, that desire, that void, whatever it is in our life. But they're going to remain restless until we put who was created to be there, which is which is Christ, which is Jesus. Um, until he's that foundation of our life, we're going to continue to wrestle and struggle um, to find what it is that we need to be fulfilled in our lives. Um, and so again, I just ask you, what is your, what is your foundation? What is that thing, what is that foundation that... Um, that is that you are building your life upon. Is it Christ, or is it something else? Right, and and, and so as we kind of start this this time together, um, that it's critical that we answer that question. Um, and so so moving forward, um, as we look at the book of Ezra, it's also important for us that we understand what is the. What's happening in, in the book? What's happening around the time? You know, most of us probably this morning, um, you know, are not super familiar maybe with, with that moment in time when Ezra wrote and the things that were happening to the people of God in that moment. Um, and it's important if we're going to understand a book, if we're going to go through the context of Scripture, that we understand the surrounding things that are happening in, in, that, in that moment. And so um, this morning I've asked um, Ross, I think I put Professor Ross, oh, he changed it. Ah, I know I shouldn't let him look at my, my slides beforehand, uh, but we're going to have, uh, I'll, I'll just say it then, Professor Ross Zablowski, uh, and Ross teaches um, history at the high school, this is a passion for him, and so um, he gets all excited, so we were, we were just talking about this um, the other day at the coffee shop, and he was just like, just throwing out all kinds of stuff, and I was like, man, that's awesome, and I said, Ross, I really want you to help us to put our minds and ourselves in the place of someone in this moment in the book of Ezra as they are going back into um, Jerusalem for the first time in hundreds of years. Um, what does it look like for them to, to now come back in and to, to, to start taking this identity on and, and learning what it means to rebuild? And so he's going to come and walk through some of the surrounding context to this book for us. So you guys give Ross a hand. Oh, man. 
Uh, as Justin said, my name is Ross Blosky, and I'm a history teacher. Fun history fact. That previous quote with St. Augustine, uh, there's a city in Florida named St. Augustine. It's the oldest European uh, city in North America. Um, Holly and I got to go to Florida over Christmas break. Uh, why don't you guys take like 30 seconds, turn someone near you, tell them what you guys did over the Christmas holiday. Go. Can we tell the white button? I'm off. Hi, all right um so what i wanted to kind of go through uh is setting up this background of who ezra is and where he's coming from um so when we're talking about the story so far we have all this old testament that's going into leading up to the book of ezra uh, if you don't know where Ezra is in your Bible, uh, it's right before where you get to the Psalms and Proverbs, so it's a little close to midway. Uh, so we have some stuff to catch up with to get to that point. Uh, I'm not going to read all these little things in here. It's kind of this cutesy stick figure uh, story of the, the main things in the Old Testament. Uh, but I'm just going to hit up the highlights. One of the biggest things uh, is the uh, Israelites getting into slavery and then Moses coming and getting them out of slavery. Now, this is part of this idea of foundations leading to the book of Ezra. Right? You have a group of people who are enslaved, and God said, I'm bringing you out, and I'm giving you a home, a land that I'm going to give you. That's going to feed into that idea of Ezra trying to rebuild this home that God has promised them. Right? So that's an important setup for where Ezra is going to. Um, and then God sets up the law. And then after that, you have the kingships set up. So you have King David and King Solomon and all these other kings. And God is saying, I'm going to give you a leader to show you how to have a godly uh, ruler in your life. And again, setting up that foundation that Ezra is going to play on about having a godly leader uh, in your community. Right. So we have these two foundations that are set up in this background of the story of having a home and having a godly leader. What ends up happening after you have David and Solomon is they break those two things that God has put in place. You have um, the division of the kings. There's a point in Israel's history where Israel and Judah split into two separate kingdoms, and so they're no longer one home, one community that God has given them. And then after that, the kings start to go downhill as well. They're no longer these godly kings. You have all these kings that, like Ahab and others that are going and worshiping other gods as well. And so they're breaking those two foundations along the way. Um, at which point, uh, God comes in and uh, they are kicked out of the land uh, through various phases. There's three phases of this exile out of Israel. Um, and so there are going to be, with the book of Ezra, three phases of bringing them back as well. Okay? Um, you can go ahead and go to the next graphic here. I don't know how well you can see this, depending on how far back you are. Um, <coughs> but I just want some more uh, response here. So I just want you to look at this for, for 10 seconds here and just shout out things you see or observe about this graphic or what it's trying to explain. <laughs> you see 
Colors. Colors. It's <laughs> good. It's good stuff. All right, there's different colors. <laughs> they were exiled in two different directions. Okay, so there's the exile of the north and there's exile of the south. What are the things we observe from this graphic? Um, like after they're split, like so, the north goes to Assyria and the south south goes to Babylon. Okay, so they're exiled to different places. What can can somebody who's closer up tell them what these words are here? Which ones? Like these words here, the things that are not circled in black. The books of the Old Testament. The, the books of the Old Testament. So it's not. Like, when we read the Bible, it's not chronological. Right. So, the way the books of the Bible are arranged are not chronological. Mm. And I think that's important because it, it, when I started to understand this, it kind of blew my mind that the things that are happening here are happening at the same time. Like, Hosea the prophet is there during Second Kings and Second Chronicles. That's all happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, it's, it's helpful to understand that. And the same thing happens in the New Testament, too. Like, you read the, the book of Philippians, and Paul is in Philippi in the book of Acts. And that's when he's writing that letter. And so it helps to understand the time period, to understand the context of why Micah would be writing this certain thing is what's happening during Second Kings, or why uh, Zechariah is writing while Ezra is trying to bring them back uh, to them. So it helps set those other books in context as well. Okay? The other thing to point out is that Ezra is actually the end of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Right, it's in the middle of our, our Bible. It's actually the end of the story before Je- 400 years of silence before Jesus comes. Right, he's right at the end there. Um, and so when we think about the setting up of a foundation, he's setting up a foundation for Jesus. This is going to be the last time that God's really acting in a big way before Jesus is going to come on the scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Um, so as somebody mentioned, there are different phases of this exile being pushed out. Um, first of all, they are conquered by a group called the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyria is most known uh, for their capital, which is Nineveh, which is later uh, when Jonah is going to go to Nineveh, because that's the Assyrian Empire. Um, the second phase is there's another part. The Assyrians get conquered by Babylonians. That's where you get Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel uh, and those stories in there. Um, and then the third phase is they get conquered by Persia. And that is who ends up taking over Babylon as well. Okay. Um, the other thing I want to point out is how Chronicles is covering most of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Right? If you actually go back and read it, uh, it's basically the same thing that is in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, is in Chronicles. The other point to mention is that Chronicles is written by Ezra, um, and there's no like real big historical reason why we know this. Uh, could I have somebody who actually has a Bible go to Second Chronicles for me and look at the last verse in Second Chronicles? The last verse. Just the last verse in Second Chronicles. <clears throat> if you could read that out loud for us. Second Chronicles thirty-six, verse twenty-three says, "Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven." has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Perfect. And then, Holly, could you read Ezra 1, 1? 
uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. So the versions might be different, but if you have the same version, if you look, it's the same verse. Second Chronicles, the last verse, and the first verse of Ezra, it's the same thing, because Ezra's continuing the story. Hmm. He gives all that background from the last slide by writing First and Second Chronicles, and saying, you need to know all of this, and now I'm going to tell you my story about what happened with rebuilding the temple. So he even thought that background was important before getting into his story of how God is going to rebuild this temple. Okay? So all of that is in there. Great. You can go to the next slide, Chad. So the bigger context, then, is Persia. These are the people that have conquered uh, the Babylonians, who were conquered, conquered the Assyrians, and they uh, matter a lot to this story of Ezra, because Ezra is in the royal court in Persia and interacts with Persian officials. So we need to understand what that system is that he is playing into. Okay? Um, one of the things as... Uh, I was studying this, and as, well, the reason I really love history and why I teach it is you get to see the timing of God in history. It's not just God is influencing Israel's story. He's influencing the world's story. Hmm. Uh, when we think about uh, Jesus, for that matter, uh, Jesus had to come at a very specific time for it to work. Um, the Romans are the ones that come up with crucifixion. The Romans have their emperor, uh, Augustus, uh, and the that is when Jesus comes, is during Augustus' reign. Uh, the reason that matters is Augustus went by a title, uh, Divinity Filius, which means the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And so the reasons the Romans execute Jesus is because they think he's claiming to be the emperor, that he's a threat to their authority. The Romans don't care about the Jews. They, they discard them completely. But the fact that someone is threatening their authority, they take that personally, and that's why they execute him, and why they're even involved in that part of the story, um, and don't just leave it to the Jews to deal with. Um, so it has to be very specific, and so it's worth noting the context of this story as well as any other story in the Bible as well. Um, so in Persia, this is stuff I would teach in my history class, so um, just bear with me. One of the big things with Persia that is so unique to them uh, in the ancient world is they have religious tolerance. Uh, that is not so really anywhere else, maybe the Mongols, but nobody else really does that. If you are taken over, you have to adopt their religion and nothing else. The Persians don't really care about that. Their religion is called Zoroastrianism, uh, and you've probably never heard of it because it goes away once Persia goes away. And part of that's their own fault because they don't make anybody convert to it. Uh, The religious tolerance is good, uh, bad for them in the long run. Um, So if you're Jewish, you can keep being Jewish, and that's fine. They don't care what you are. Um, and generally, Persia gets a lot of good press in the Old Testament. Like when they talk about the Persian kings of Cyrus and Darius, they speak very highly of them because of that. Um, that you're allowed to be Jewish, you can keep doing that. If you are, it's not on the map, but they end up taking over part of India as well. So if you're Hindu, you can keep being Hindu. They take over Egypt, they keep <coughs> worshipping their, their Egyptian gods, and they're fine with that. As long as you pay your taxes, they don't care what you believe. The money is really what matters to them. Um, if we think of the Persian Empire, it is bureaucracy. That is what they love more than anything. It's an efficiently run system. And so to have people fighting over religion, that's just going to mess things up. And so you can believe whatever you want. Just give us your money, and you can keep doing that. 
Um, that being said, their taxes are very fair in general. So it's based on how much you produce. So if you make a lot of money, if you have a lot of crops, you're going to pay more in taxes. If you don't, you pay less. So again, very fair system. It kept people in line. Um, the places that are going to make the most or give the most taxes are going to be in Egypt because they have that wealth of the Nile, in Babylon uh, because they are in an area called the Fertile Crescent, which is really good for farming as well. Um, in fact, a lot of people wanted it to be conquered by the Persians because it was a better system than whatever they were under, uh, whatever tyrant or, or ruler was in control of them. Uh, they are very organized. Like I said, they have governorships called satraps. They divide the Persian Empire into 20 different groups, and that is helpful for organizing this large empire. This is the largest empire up until this point the world has ever seen. Um, they have uh, over 35 million people in their empire, uh, as well as 3 million miles of land to control. So they do that by dividing it up. Each governor can have his own standing army, he has his own road system, he collects his own taxes, and gives a portion to the Persian emperor. That is important because it gets confusing in a lot of the books of the Old Testament because they'll reference the ruler over their area, and that really is the person that is governing everything, but he's not the Persian emperor. So, like Darius is a very common Persian name, so they'll say Darius, but then you'll look in the history records like, well, the emperor was something else. It's because they're talking about that governor who really did control their lives much more than the emperor ever did. Um, so we'll get to more of that in a second. Um, so when we think about how we organize things, this is what the Persians do. They have governors. They divide it all up. You have your own army. They have roads. They have a tax system. They keep the peace of the religious tolerance. Going into the new year, how do you guys get organized, or do you care about organization? Chat with someone next to you for 30 seconds. Go. So why any of this matters so far? Persia is essential for this story because that is how Ezra is going to gain freedom for God's people is by using the Persian bureaucracy. Again, we'll get into that as we study the book of Ezra, but it is so essential to understand that this is what they value and Ezra understands that. And so he uses that system to gain benefit for God's people. All right, All right you can go to the next slide, John. So not to get too history uh, but this is what we're talking about. Ezra's story encompasses about 100 years. He's not in it the whole time. So the first, like, three or four chapters is another guy. Uh, he, Ezra's just telling his story. It's like Zerubbabel or something like that, Zerubbabel, however you say it. Um, and then, so Ezra is interesting because it's third person for first, second Chronicles, Ezra 1, 2, 3. And then in Ezra chapter 4, it goes to first person because now he's putting himself in the story to explain what's happening. Uh, the names are going to be confusing, so just embrace it. Um, part of what makes it confusing is Cyrus is the first emperor in Persia, 
these two guys, there's like a rebellion. They're not really the emperor. They're just vying for power. So not really mentioned a lot. It's also confusing because there's a uh, Jewish name that they refer to them and then a Persian name. So you'll, like, you'll see that this guy is sometimes referred to as Artaxerxes, but then there's an actual emperor later on named Artaxerxes. It's not the same person. It's a different guy later on. So we might have to refer back to this slide as we go through the book to keep it all straight of who they're talking about. Okay? One of the things that I love about this, also about studying history, is these two are probably a little more famous, Darius and Xerxes. Um, Darius uh, is the guy who launches the Persian War against the Greeks with the Battle of Marathon. Um, does anybody, has anyone heard of Xerxes before? Any Zack Snyder movie fans know who Xerxes is? <laughs> The God King Xerxes. Is that in 300? 300, yeah. He's the guy uh, who fights the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae um, and wipes them all out. It masses the largest army the world has ever seen before. Uh, there won't be a larger army or invading force until D-Day and World War II. Uh, it is a huge undertaking. That being said, what's cool about that is that is where the story of Esther takes place. That a Jewish girl is able to move the heart of this king that is so obsessed with power and uh, you know just butchering people, but yet she, he is willing to listen to her in that story. Um, and so I think it changes that context of that story, that that is happening during the book of Ezra, while he is trying to use the Persian bureaucracy to gain freedom for God's people. She is also appealing to the Persian emperor on another front, to gain safety for God's people before they're able to leave to go. Okay? If Esther wasn't doing that, they'd be wiped out while Ezra's trying to get them out um, to leave. Right? Um, so I think we forget that, that Esther is in the middle of that story while that's going on. It's not cool. Um, and then Nehemiah is near the end of Ezra's story as well. Uh, so like we said, there's three waves of this uh, returning after the exile. Um, Ezra's not there for the first part. He's there in the second. And then Nehemiah is helping with the third part as well. Okay? Um, you can go ahead. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so the point of Ezra's story takes about 100 years of time. The reason for this slide, this is what happens afterward. The only reason I mention it is that the next 100 years, and then they're gone. They get conquered by Alexander the Great. So it had to be in that chunk of Persian kings, with Cyrus and Darius, again, talking about God's timing and things. It had to be that time, because in the next hundred years, they're on their way out. They have terrible rulers who, who mismanage the bureaucracy to the point where Alexander the Great is able to conquer them, and they're done. Their empire is no more. So God had to be in that time period right before that. Okay. Um, so, uh, take... Like, 30 seconds, chat with someone next to you. What is something you learned or gained from what I was just talking about? Go. Yeah. And I, and I never, 
just on the other two slides, right, that this 100-year period is what has to happen, has to be this time for this to work, right? The context is so incredibly important. Um, I heard Holly mentioning it, and it was actually what I was going to say next anyway, is that all this history and context, why I love it, is that it leads me to worship, like that God is sovereign enough to know not just Israel's story, but to be influencing entire empires, the Persians and the Romans and the Assyrians, they all have to be involved in this for this to work. It should lead us to that appreciation and that awe of what God is doing, not just in individual lives with Ezra, but in entire empires that want nothing to do with him. Um, so that's cool. All right, the last thing that I'm going to talk about real quick, because I don't want to spoil too much, uh, is who Ezra is and what he is doing in our story. So he is a priest, and that is important because he comes from a line of priests. There's a promise that God makes in the Old Testament. It's part of why he includes all that background, is he is trying to show validity that he has the right to reestablish the temple. Uh, there's all these, uh, when the 12 tribes of Israel are started, Levi is set us apart to say that they are the ones that are going to be in charge of the temple, of maintaining those traditions. And so he shows, there's a chunk, I don't know if we're going to go through it, but yeah, I think it's Ezra 1 or 2, where it's just a list of names, uh, and that's there for that validity, to show he is of the line, of the priestly line of Levi, coming from Aaron back with Moses, so he has the right to reestablish this temple. And that's what he's going to be doing, is putting this all together. Um, getting back to what they're supposed to be doing, going back to the home God had given them, going back to having godly leaders that are going to show the world who they are and point them back to him. Um, so that is where I'll leave. No, that's great. Cool. Thank you so much, Ross. That was great. Um, to be able to make history interesting and then applicable for our lives is not an easy task. Um, and that's why I asked Ross to do it. Because I would have just been up here reading like facts like, and then the Persians conquered them, you know. Um, and so I appreciate um, his desire to, to do that um, and to, to make that relevant um, and important. Because I think it does all encapsulate why we want to understand the background and the history. Um, you know, there's not too many, too many Sundays that you get to preach from the map section of your Bible. Um, and so to be able to see, you know, maps and pull these things out, but then to understand why that's important. Um, so as we move forward in the story, we're not just saying, hey, you know, um, this is this is a really good verse for me to hang on to and maybe put it on a bumper sticker. Right. But to, to look at the at the, the width of what God is doing and uh, realize that it's that it's happening in a, in a very big way. Um, and to understand all that background and history um, really helps set us up so as we go forward, we have an understanding of what's happening. Um, 
And one of the things that's uh, important to understand too is that you know these, and we'll talk, be talking about this in the weeks coming, but but these people had been out of their homeland and out of the practice of worshiping their God for a long season. So they had, in a lot of ways, forgotten what it meant to worship God. Uh, they had forgotten. They had started building their lives on some of these foundations, uh, embraced what it looked like to be um, an Assyrian, a Babylonian, a Persian. And so they had forgotten what it meant to be distinct and to worship their God, um, the God Yahweh, um, who had done all these incredible things. And so, um, you know, that's the mindset that I want us to get into as we start to look through um, the book of Ezra. Um, one, one other important thing to know, too, the main character for the book of Ezra, even though it has his name on it, it's not about Ezra. Uh, the, main, the main character, the main, uh, the main person in, or not really person, but the main, uh, the main character is God. Um, we're going to see, like Ross just pointed out, we're going to see God moving through what he does in Persia, what, the, what he does for his people as he makes ways for them to come back into the land, God is going to be the main character. He's going to be the one that we focus on what he's doing in this book. So uh, that kind of leads to, so where are we going? I just want to give a brief little outline of, of what is the next uh, two and a half months really. Um, we can go on to, to there's a, there you go. To the series outline um, of what what we're going to be looking at, okay? And so you see, today we talked about background and setting, um, and then so for the month of January, February, and into March, we're going to talk about um, what does it look like to rebuild um, as we go through each chapter or sections of chapters. We're going to talk about that rebuilding process and and the work that it takes and, and how opposition comes in. There's a process and the spiritual renewal aspect of that, um, and what does it look like to to worship to truly worship God in our lives. And so that's kind of the outline. I wanted you just to see that. that that's where we're going over the next uh, couple of months as we do this. Um, now the other aspect of this that's um, I think important for us to, to understand as well is that um, you know this morning uh, is important. It's important for us to come and to understand <coughs> excuse me, the Word of God. Um, but we also tie with that, we believe at Bedrock that, that with that is also uh, very important that we also have a community that we can interact and ask those questions. I, I saw, like, I love the discussion that was happening when, when you guys had those little 30-second breaks to talk about those things. Um, and so we have groups that meet throughout the week um, to do just that. We have uh, five groups right now that um, are really meeting together to be community and to love one another and to, and to open up God's Word together and, and share that in a, in a relevant way and to understand how that applies to our life. And so what we like to say is that Sunday morning's time, primarily we focus on the interpretation. We, we, we try to take what God has said in His Word and we try to understand it the best that we can so we know what He's saying to us. Um, and then life groups become that place that we focus uh, primarily on the application part of that. Yes, in, in, in Sunday morning time, yes, we're going to try to keep that discussion part happening in the application. We're going to talk about that, but we don't have the time or the setting to do that in the way that you would in a living room or in a smaller group setting. Um, and then, yes, in, in the small group, we will talk about some of the background and, and some of the history and, and, and some of the interpretation, but we're going to focus mainly on how do I live that out in my life. So I say all that to say, if you want to get the most out of our time at Ezra, um, it's not a, I'm going to pick one or the other, but it's a both and because they, they really sync together. Um, and so for uh, if we get back to the slide, 
Um, we were just on fixed. Um, the top three groups up there, um, all three of those groups are going to be going through uh, Ezra in their time together. And so if you go, if you attend either one of those groups, um, they're going to all be discussing what we're talking about on Sunday morning. Um, and they're going to be as kind of that follow-up application time. Uh, now, the bottom two groups, they're kind of doing something different just because they have different phases uh, of life and different things that they're dealing with. And so they're going to kind of be discussing some, some different things. But those top three groups, um, I would encourage you, if you're not connected with a group, go check one out because you're really going to get the fuller, um, the, the fuller understanding and the, and the fuller impact if you are in both of those. Um, last thing I want to kind of wrap up with for today. Um, and, and I think this is important that we answer this off the bat. And, and that is why, why should you come back? Um, why should you be a part of this? Why, why, you know, why come back two and a half months? Uh, we were talking about this morning is a commitment that's pretty big in our culture. If you think about it, um, we were saying, you know, a lot of people will join the gym with it being the new year, right? We joined the gym in January and by like the second week we've stopped going. And by the end of the month, we're like, all right, we're done. Um, you know, and we don't go for the rest of the year. And so commitment is a big thing. Why commit two and a half months of your life to coming and being a part of this, right? Why, why take the effort? We realize there's time and effort involved in being a part of uh, Sunday morning gathering time together, but and then also trying to be a part of a life group and, and connect on a deeper way. Why should you do that? And um, what I want us to, to understand is that, um, again, this goes back to um, our... Um, back to our, our vision statement and our series, um, we all have those shaky foundations in our life, um, right? We all have those things in our life that we've built up um, and put in our, in our life. We may not be proud of them. Um, we may not want to talk to people about them. Um, we, we may, they may be embarrassing, some of those. Um, and some of them, we, just, we don't even acknowledge that. We're not even thinking about those, right? But we have shaky foundations in our life. And so, so what are some of those? Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's, it's, it's a place to start thinking about. Um, sometimes those are relationships. You know, we have put prioritized relationships in our life with, with other humans, with individuals, over the place of God in our life. And I can tell you that those just don't work. It doesn't work when we put a person in God's place in our life. Um, they're always going to let us down. They're always going to leave us uh, wanting something that um, they can't fulfill or we can't fulfill for them. And so sometimes we put relationships in that place. Sometimes it's addictions. It's things that we, that we so get um, addicted and pulled into that that becomes top priority of everything else. Um, sometimes it's, it's just selfishness and pride, right? It's just what I have going on. It's my time. It's my things, right? And I think I, that's probably universal for all of us, right? It's so easy to put uh, pride in, in myself above my time with God, above putting Him as Jesus as the foundation of my life. Um, we want to put ourselves in that place. Um, maybe for, for some of us, it's, um, you know, we really get caught up in what other people think about us. And so now we're starting to define who we are and our value based on what other people said, not on the foundation of who God has said we are. Uh, maybe we have a, a, a bad understanding of who we are, who God has made us to be. Um, and so if, if Jesus is not at that foundation, we're never going to understand who it is that God has, has created us to be and to live in that way. Um, a few more. Maybe it's, maybe it's work. Maybe it's just, you know, we, we give ourselves so much to this thing that we don't have time for God. Um, and, it, and these aren't all bad things. You know, it, it could be family. Right, family takes time, and it's. We were just talking last night at dinner about how family is so so important. It's a top priority in our life, but it can't trump God in our life. Right, if family gets in place of God, then neither one of those things are going to work the way that they were created to work. Um, 
Maybe it's, maybe it's good works. Maybe it's trying to impress people. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's just trying to, to, to get to the next level, to level up to the next thing. Uh, maybe it's self-reliance. Maybe it's, you know, I don't need God. I got it all figured out. I got life all figured out. Um, and I want to say that at some point the rains will come and the testing will come. And if that foundation is on something that's shaky, that it's the sand, it's not solid, it's going to fall. And so we all have those things in our life. We all have those shaky foundations in our life. And we realize that many of those are built over a long period of time, right? A lot of those, those things that we build those foundations on, they're not built overnight, right? It's a process to get to that place. And so we also realize that, you know what, it may not be overnight that we tear all those down and we start to rebuild on Jesus as the foundation, right? But we want to encourage you to come back and be a part of that as we start the process. That's what we're asking today is that we would start that process of tearing down those shaky foundations and starting to rebuild on Jesus as that foundation of our life. Um, and so no matter where we're at, we have to realize that we, we all have those, right? And it's going to be a process. Um, I want to point us to, to one other place in Scripture um, really quickly. And, and I found this really interesting. In the book of Nehemiah, so, so Ross just talked about how Nehemiah kind of leads in this third wave of people coming back in. And so in Nehemiah, in, in chapter 1, um, in the first four verses, look what Nehemiah records. Um, so he says, um, let's skip down through a lot of the names because I probably can't pronounce them right, right? Um, but he goes and he asks, he said, what is happening concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem? And he, said to me, and he said to me, the remnant there is in the providence, who has survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, this was this where Nehemiah's writing is is about ninety years after this first wave had come back into Jerusalem. And so we thought, man, after ninety years, man, these people should have got it right. They should have got the foundation laid right. That they've had ninety years to get this right. Um, but what I see in this in this verse is that you know sometimes those foundations take a while to to rebuild. Um, and so I just want to encourage you this morning that if there are those foundations in our life, and I think we all have them, it's okay that those aren't going to be torn down overnight. It's going to be a process. Um, and we need to take the time to focus in on that. And so I would just encourage everyone to take that step today, um, to take that step to toward starting to tear down that foundation, um, wh- whatever it may be in your life, and join with us over the next two and a half months as we look at that. Um, and so this morning, um, as, as we've kind of as we kind of wrap up, one just realizing again, <laughs> we have those foundations, and we need to ask God to help us to start rebuilding on those. But then the second thing I want us to understand is that um, we're not the only ones that have shaky foundations in our lives either. We probably can all think of people that we know, and we love, and we care about in our lives who um, we can see, and a lot of times uh, we can see things in people's lives that they can't see. You know, it's really hard sometimes to see those own shaky foundations in your life. Uh, But sometimes we can see that in the lives of people we care about. Um, And so we probably all have people that we know that have those shaky foundations. Um, And so the second part this morning that I want to encourage you to is to think through who do you know, who do you have a connection with that has those that you can invite to come back with you next week as we start looking at rebuilding those. Um, and so on your, on your way out this morning, Sam's going to have uh, some invite cards. Sam's in the blue uh, sweater right there. 
Um, he's going to have some invite cards. Just have uh, the time on Sunday mornings and where we're going to be at. And so I would just encourage everybody uh, to take two of those and think of two people that you know that may need to come and to hear that um, over the next two and a half months that can be a part of that with you. Okay. Uh, now to wrap up today, um, in true Bedrock fashion, we, we like I said, we we really want discussion and interaction to happen. We realize this isn't uh, maybe the best place for it to happen. We still want that to be a part of what we do. And so um, what we want to do is we want to uh, finish each week with a community question, a question where we're going to get in groups of four or five people, and we're going to take a couple of minutes just to discuss uh, a, a question based around what we talked about this morning. Okay? So the question for today is, given our, our discussion on the book of Ezra and the Israelite story, what are the foundations um, that you have built in your life. What are some of those things that we tend, and again, um, you know, be as transparent as you feel comfortable to be, but what are some of those foundations that we build up, those things we put our trust and our hope in, those foundations in our life? And then second, why? Why should Jesus be the center of our lives, of those foundations of our lives?